Yeah, we're good. So yeah, for those of you who are forced to stay behind and suffer listening to me, I hope that you do get something out of it. I'm going to speak from Galatians today. Um, you may wonder why there's a Turkish flag on my first slide. Well, there was a big gap there, and I wanted to put something that was an interesting fact about Galatia. I couldn't really find one, apart from the fact that it's in Turkey. So <laughs> matched quite nicely with the red border as well. So Galatians 5, starting with verse 1 and then verse 13 onwards. Oh, the clicker's going mad now. <laughs> the technology's not working, is it? You, oh, you can see everything. Ah, no. It's all been spoiled. <laughs> so verse 1 of chapter 5. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Now, often when I'm preparing to preach, I find it fascinating how God works in surprising ways. Um, and this time, one of my favourite books of the Bible is Romans, particularly chapters 6 to 8. And this week in the uh, reflection app that I use for my daily Bible reading, that was the lectionary reading that was being reflected on. And now Galatians 5 is also now one of my favourite chapters of the Bible because it's uncannily similar to Romans 6 to 8. Now, why do I mention this, apart from a vaguely uninteresting aside? It's because whilst all Scripture is important, I find it interesting that Paul decided to write the message we're going to hear today twice. Once to the Roman church who he'd never met and was writing to outline the fundamentals of what faith is. And then secondly, to the church at Galatia, where he was writing uh, to the church that he'd visited and founded, who had begun to turn away from the true faith. So I think this is a message today we're going to look at that's absolutely fundamental to our understanding of faith, but it's also a message to continually revisit and reaffirm throughout our walk. So as I said, the message is summed up in verse 1. Christ has set us free. But it's easy to lose our freedom. One of the fundamental questions I think Paul's addressing in this chapter is, what is freedom? Now the dictionary definition of freedom, number one, is the power or right to act, speak or think as one wants. Although some interesting and amusing other definitions have also been developed over time. <laughs> and some interesting product naming has uh, caused some amusement online as well. <laughs> so, between this verse 1, where Paul speaks of being saved for freedom, and verse 13, where we started off today, uh, Paul outlines part of what can return us to slavery. And for the Galatians, that was relying on the Old Testament Jewish law for their salvation. But in this day and age, it could perhaps relate to thinking our own good works in some way justify us or ingratiate us to God, or by thinking that all Christians should conform to certain human, social or cultural constructs that we might set up. Now Paul sees himself, I think, as a spiritual father to the church at Galatia. And although some of his words in the whole book and indeed this reading might seem a little bit harsh, I think he's writing here as a concerned parent. He's pained by watching his children make mistakes that will harm them. 
And likewise, we're all prone to making mistakes from time to time. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that bridge one is actually real, but <laughs> it was amusing to put in. <laughs> now, at the start of our reading in verses 13 to 15, Paul launches into a defence of his position that we cannot be justified by the old law, but instead by faith. And he's defending it against a common attack by some of his detractors. They were saying, so if we're set free from the law, surely that means we can do anything we want. Gives us license to partake in all the evil things that God hates. How could God sanction that? That must be false. Paul must be wrong. But Paul replies in verses 13 to 15, saying, of course God hasn't sanctioned such a thing. We're not to use our freedom as a license to do anything, all the evil things that are on offer, but we're to use our freedom to serve one another in love, loving our neighbours as ourselves. And there's a stark warning in verse 15 that if we act in hate, we'll be destroyed by each other. And he's particularly, this letter is addressed to the church, so he's talking about relationships within the church. If we start biting and devouring each other, we will be destroyed. And I'm sure you've often heard the phrase that the people are the church, or the church is the people. So by biting at and devouring each other, we are, in essence, destroying the church as well as one another. So what is Paul's answer to this? He says in verses 16 to 18, instead we're to walk by the Spirit. So here Paul has introduced two contrary and conflicting powers, the flesh and the Spirit. And as believers, both are part of who we are and they're part of our ancestry. Now the flesh isn't our physical form, but it's our inherently sinful nature that comes through our earthly lineage all the way back to Adam and the fall. Whereas the spirit comes from our second birth into Christ, our ancestry as children of God, not just children of man. And I think it's interesting, although, especially in this church where set-up prohibits us, we don't practice full immersion baptism as often these days. But it's important to remember that symbolism of full immersion in baptism. The death and resurrection, the death of the flesh and the birth of the new spirit within us that is part of our journey into faith. Now from verses 19 to 21, Paul lists out some of the examples of acts of the flesh. And like any good parent figure, even though he says it's obvious, he then decides to point it out at length to us anyway. And in there, he lists out all these obvious acts of the flesh and then tells us that those who practice them won't inherit the kingdom. Now, that was a little bit concerning to me at first. I thought, initially reading that, maybe I should just give up and not turn up today because I've already lost the chance to inherit the kingdom of God because I've already done some of the things on that list. But that, uh, the word, the Greek word for... Sort of, doing those things there. It doesn't mean a one-off or a lapse, but it means a habit. It's those who habitually practice these acts of the flesh who will not inherit the kingdom. And then, from verses 22 onwards, Paul lists out the fruits of the Spirit, the inward attitude and outward expressions that mark out a person in whom the Spirit is working. 
So the context for the rest of what I'm going to say this morning is the context of this battle within us between two opposing and opposite forces, the flesh and the spirit, who want very different things and are constantly knocking together within us. So if we go back to verse 17, verse 17, in our NIV translation, it says, you are not to do whatever you want. And the exact translation here is a bit unclear, and you'll see in the Bible there's a little footnote, one of these pesky little footnotes, which when I first started getting into the Bible seriously, I used to hate these footnotes. Because as someone who, if you've known me for a long time, you'll know my sort of, I'm a bit more of a left-brained kind of person. At school, I was a science-y, maths-y sort of person. So in my mind, there's one answer, one right answer. We can't do this ambiguity. There's got to be one answer. But unfortunately, in uh, literature and other realms of study, it's not that clear. And uh, I think we often conveniently overlook it in our own language. That there's so much ambiguity in English as well. Uh, I was thinking of examples here. We could say, the, the lock is full of water. Now, have I been in the garden and found that my padlock's been damaged by the rain? Or have I been over the meads, walking down by the river? We kind of overlook these ambiguities in English and detest them when they come up in the Greek. But we have a bit of ambiguity there in verse 17. And I think the NIV translation of saying, we shouldn't do whatever we want, is trying to reinforce the concept that we're not free to do anything. We don't have license to indulge the flesh. Uh, that point that's made in verse 13, it's trying to reinforce it. But the NIV is kind of on its own in that translation. Most other Bibles go for the other reading, and that's the one that I prefer, which I think is most aptly put by the New Living Translation, which says, these two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. I think what this means is that in verse 17, Paul's not wagging a reproachful finger saying, you mustn't do whatever you want to do. You can't do these things. He's actually almost throwing his hands up in compassion and saying, I get it. There's this conflict within us. There's these two opposing forces. And actually, sometimes we just don't feel like it's possible to do the good things we want to do, no matter how hard we try. So what's the answer to this conflict? Well, Paul's already given it to us. In verse 16, he says, Walk by the Spirit, then you will not gratify the flesh. And he's given the answer almost before addressing the question, I think, because he knows that the Galatians have already received the Spirit and turned away from it as a free gift. In Galatians 3, verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish? Having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? So how do we walk in the spirit. Now, it can be dangerous at times to preach from analogy, but I think there's two words in this passage which were quite carefully selected by Paul and allow me a little bit of license to explore uh, their wider meaning. The first one is fruit, as in the fruit of the spirit in verse 22. Now, I'm growing some fruit at home at the moment, a few tomatoes, a strawberry plant, and it's going okay. Most days after work, I come in, keep an eye on it, give it a bit of water if it needs it, get rid of a few weeds now and then. But my role's pretty minimal. I planted a seed, I moved it from one small pot to a bigger pot, I give it some water. 
But I can't force it to grow or bear any fruit. All I can do is that, that little part, fertilizing the soil, keeping it staked up so it doesn't flop over. And I see the fruit of the Spirit as quite similar. We play a tiny part, and no matter how much we might want to play a bigger part, the role we can play is only very small. And it's that role of cultivators. The Holy Spirit himself does the hard work. Our role is as a cultivator, protecting the first inworking of the Spirit in our early faith, removing any weeds that might strangle its growth and providing the necessary space and nutrients for it to flourish. And then the second word I wanted to focus on is in verse 24, crucifixion, the crucifixion of the flesh. Now, I heard the sort of cliched words this week that some of you might have uh, heard before, the flesh is weak. And in my mind, when people say the flesh is weak, it's speaking of the flesh as something to be pitied or mastered or strengthened. Um, But I don't think that sits very well with a reading of Galatians 5. Instead, actually, what I think Galatians 5 is telling us is that the flesh is a strong power that needs to be mercilessly dispatched with. And I was drawn here to the words of Jesus, who in one of his parables said, Who can enter into a strong man's house and plunder it except a stronger man? And likewise, who can deal with the strong flesh except something even stronger. It's too great a power for us to deal with alone. The only way to nail the flesh to a cross, to crucify it, is through the blood of Jesus. As verse 1 says, it's Christ who sets us free, not our own efforts. But verse 24 speaks of it of being us that crucifies the flesh, as though we have a more active and prominent role than just giving it all over to Jesus to do in our belief. And I think this comes down to the fact that to be a crucifier is much more than just banging a few nails in. To be a crucifier involves a long period of waiting for the one on the cross to die, not allowing anything or anyone to remove them, but mercilessly leaving them to their fate. And I think when we accept Christ, the flesh is nailed to a cross, and destined to die. But we need to leave it there, not taking advice from the final words it might speak to us, not wishing it could be taken down, not wishing some final token of it could be retained. Nothing but complete destruction will do for the flesh. Now, some of you might think it's getting a bit serious now, a good sermon spoilt by a little bit of overzealousness, A bit of intense stuff at the end. It's only reserved for people who take their faith too seriously. But like Paul, I would urge you not to turn your back on the true faith or bury your head in the sand. We have to examine ourselves and ask, do we truly believe what the Bible tells us? Because if we do, it's an undeniable truth that there are these two powers battling at work within us. And one will have to conquer the other in the end. So... You can put on your noise-cancelling headphones when the bombs are dropping outside, but it's not going to do much good when one lands on your house. So to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, then we will be able to do the otherwise impossible and put the flesh to death. Without the Spirit, even the freedom given by Christ 
can be returned to a yoke of slavery as the flesh once more retains a hold in our life even though it is destined to die. So returning to our original question, what is freedom? Now I think freedom is not being able to do anything as much as it is to do things. It's the freedom not to do as well as the freedom to do. Being empowered to do the good we want and resist the evil that we don't want to do. And I gave you the first dictionary definition of freedom earlier on. But as you go down, there's often in the dictionary multiple definitions for different things. As you go down, I see another one, which I think sits better with Paul's theology. It says, freedom is the capacity to act by choice rather than by determination. And as Christians, we believe that's the freedom to act by our own choice rather than the determination of our sinful nature of the flesh. So having spent some time this morning uh, going on about the importance of receiving and cultivating the Spirit in our walk in faith, I just wanted to end now with, uh, by playing a short piece of music and offering us the chance to reflect and open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit anew. And just to receive anything that God might have for us this morning, to take that next step in cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, to making sure we keep daily putting the flesh to death, keeping it nailed in place on the cross so that we can walk in the true freedom that comes to us. So as we just have this time of reflection now, I'll end with one of those most ancient prayers that's been prayed by believers throughout the generations. Come, Holy Spirit.